PhDs at Work podcast, session four. Welcome to the PhDs at Work podcast. I'm Michelle Erickson, founder and host. And today we are talking with Pallavi Fertial. And I have to tell you, I am really excited about this podcast. It was so interesting to me to speak with Pallavi and learn more about her work. You know, I don't know if it's because I'm not in the science space, so all of this sounds really new and interesting to me. Um, those of you who are in the sciences, you'll have to let me know, but just really interesting stuff. Pallavi is a senior analyst and program manager at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and they work principally in the space of public policy and advocacy. Uh, so some of the things we talk about today are the role of informed citizenry and how that supports our democratic system. We also talk about... Uh, how important it is for scientists, particularly when you're working in a public policy space, to not only be able to analyze and understand data, but to reshape that data in a way that is accurate, uh, but still tells a compelling story and really resonates with people and moves them to action. And then finally, towards the end, Pallavi tells us a little bit more about the Science Network, which the Union of Concerned Scientists runs. And it's a great source uh, for those of you who are in the sciences who want to connect with others who are like-minded and really interested in this space. And it's also a great place to get some good media relations and communications training. Uh, you'll find all the information and links in our show notes, uh, but it's just so much good stuff. Let's just get started. Here we go. Pallavi, thanks so much for, you know, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Really excited to have you. Excited to have uh, someone in your line of work, which is science and public policy. It's really interesting stuff. Thanks for sharing your weekend in life with us. Michelle, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you so much for the invitation. I, um, When you first approached me about the blog series and mentioned that you're trying to broaden your audience and membership base, I also realized that uh, you're looking to get in some scientist voices in here, and so I'm really delighted to provide that and talk about uh, the broad breadth of things that people can do with their scientific and technical backgrounds. Yeah, I really loved it. And it was so interesting to hear about the impact you have on our, you know, our government policy. When I think of um, PhD science researchers, I think of people working in pharmaceuticals or in market research or, um, you know, in, in something that's very closely aligned with really hardcore research and the space you're working in, it's such a powerful space and, and you have so much influence. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and I should uh, couch that with uh, a sentiment that we often see in the scientific community where it's not clear, especially to early career scientists, but even to established scientists, whether this is the right path for them to take or not. Uh, there are a lot of scientists who know incredibly lot, a large amount of information on things that impact our societal choices, on things that impact our society, and a lot of critical issues that we are 
currently facing. Uh, but there is a debate within the scientific community. It's not a new debate. You know, it's it's happened over the course of centuries, which is how should scientists engage or not engage in public policy and advocacy? And does that do something uh, to the credibility that they hold if they step out of their labs and field work and their academic publishing to really become more visible and talk more about given the data what are the public policy and ad public policy choices um, that we that we have as a society yeah this is so interesting because i was just uh i was just uh recently had a call with adam capitano he works in academic publishing he's one of our guest bloggers you may have seen his work on the site and one of the conversations we were talking about was open access and this debate of open access and how do we make scholarly research available to the public at large? And it's, I know, um, I, could you tell us a little bit more about your work at um, the Union of Concerned Scientists? How does that figure into your work? Are you collaborating with academics and bringing their research to out to help influence public policy? Or do you find that there are issues around open access and therefore you must um, hire in researchers to do work so that they fully understand the context of the work they're doing? Is that an issue at all in your space? Uh, not as much, but uh, going to your first question of whether we work with academics and how we bring in their research into the work that we do, the Union of Concerned Scientists is um, a 45-year-old organization. We got started really at the peak of the Vietnam War, um, and it started by it was started by uh, faculty and students at MIT which essentially had a teach-in to, um, to challenge the idea that science and technology and the advances were being misused um, in society. And so really the idea grew out of how do we take technological advances and put them for societal benefit as opposed to uh, war and the associated problems that uh, war brings to a society. So, um, you know, it's an organization that was started by academics, but it has evolved over the past four decades in, um, in the form that we have it today, which is we have several scientists and engineers that are on staff. So we have our own analytical and technical capacity within the organization, but we, we extensively collaborate with colleagues, not just in academia, but also at federal labs to, um, to really to take undertake an analysis which is much more applicable when it comes into the public policy sphere. Um, so uh, the open access issues, as important as they are, you know, we we produce our own research, and um, at the end of the day, our scientists and analysts also publish some of their research in academic journals, but a lot of our research is also reports that we write. And the specific objective of having these reports is to have them accessible, available, and uh, really actually to put them in front of people and decision makers so that they know what the underpinnings of our analysis are. So in a way, the reports we are producing are all open access. We have them on our websites. We take them to, uh, on our website, we take them to conferences. We actually meet with policymakers with our reports to talk about what is in there and what are we proposing. So open access is just slightly tangential, but all our work 
is grounded on the idea that information is crucial, not only for the public, but also for people who are making decisions based on that information. That, I, I love that. I, that's amazing. It also strikes me, though, that there's got to be more work that goes, it's, it's almost, I would imagine that the burden of work is almost twice as much as the academic, because you have to translate information into a vocabulary and terms and context for a general reader. Is that, would you agree with that, or yeah, does that it's, happen naturally? It's, yeah, it, uh, it's hard to say which is more difficult versus not, but um, I think it, they definitely they are different animals, academic research versus the kind of research and analysis we do, because we have to kind of work backwards from what is the problem that we are, what is the public policy problem that we are trying to solve, and what kinds of analysis do we need to help think about what are the policy options that we have based on the information that we have. So it's a slightly different way of approaching a problem. Um, the point that you made about getting this information into people's hands is a very important one. Um, our scientists and analysts typically are not in, you know, locked up in an office just doing their analysis and, <laughs> right. and research. They have to be, by just the nature of this work, they have to be much more in tune with um, externally what what is, how is the political environment playing out externally. They have to be savvy about what is, um, not only what we think is the right public policy um option that we can provide, but also what is feasible in a certain time frame. So you have to start thinking about the analyses in a very different way, as opposed to if you're in academia and you have a research question that you're trying to solve day after day, month after month, years after years. And um, unfortunately, and maybe even fortunately, uh, public policy and advocacy doesn't have, you don't have the luxury of that kind of time frame, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so you just have to be much more cognizant of everything that's playing out politically around you. Um, also thinking about the the right kinds of opportunities that you always have to have an eye on. So you just become much more connected with the societal conversation and then use your research to inform it. Yeah, that's, um, for me, that really highlights this interesting juxtaposition that was one of the first things I thought about in reading about your work, was here you are a scientist, right? You are doing research in a lab, data is king, and now you're working in advocacy and public policy. And when, when I think about what it requires to be successful in that kind of space, it requires a level of empathy, understanding, incredible political and social savvy, uh, but essentially to have a, a pulse on emotion. And those are two things that we typically think of as being at opposite ends of a spectrum, right? Someone who's more emotionally savvy and someone who's very data savvy. You kind of have to, mm -hmm. it requires a special... You, right. you, you've got a lot of skills going on over there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I agree. Uh, I think mostly when we think about, you know, hardcore evidence and data, we usually think of that as 
in a way opposing or not quite in sync with the emotional way of thinking about things right but one of the things that we really pay attention to is without compromising any of the analysis that we do or any of the data sources we use or you know any of our reports that are um, they have to be technically very very rigorous so we we have a peer review process like you have in academia so for even for our reports we have a thorough internal external peer review uh, so it that ensures that whatever work we are doing is rigorous and stays is held to the highest level level of standard but the piece that you're talking about with the emotional savviness i think we bring that into how we communicate about these reports you know what kind of messages people hear or don't hear what are the ways that you talk to people about data that can move them can connect with them can relate to the things that they experience every day so one of the main things that guides all of our work is to say how do we while we are doing this really dry analysis how do we talk about it in a way that resonates with people so that people care and and how do we um connect the dots for them to say how science and and democracy are interlinked how they feed off of each other how do they inform each other and what is the role of informed citizenry in making our system of governance a strong one and how do we provide data to really uh, strengthen that relationship between the the public and people who govern them it's well that's i <laughs> i'm speechless i just wow that was so well said um it's so impressive i'd never uh, until i learned more about the unit of concerned scientists i never really thought uh well i never gave a great deal of thought and, and so i never made that connection between science and democracy it's it's a powerful one do you think that it's um is this just because i'm not a scientist uh so but is this common is this a common discussion you well i take it back you did say that this is a centuries old debate going on inside the scientific community. Yeah, but I think uh, you know your question is a good one because it's um I think it's a very powerful framing of how information um really supports our democratic system, how science and information support this system. But it's not a conversation that um is all that common in fact the specific program at the union of concerned scientists that i work at it's called the center for science and democracy and we re- we launched this program um not too long ago just just about two and a half years ago and with the with the precise um consideration that you know even beyond specific issues that the union of concerned scientists has been working on for a very long time such as nuclear security such as uh, climate and energy and food and agriculture um uh, vehicles and transportation so even beyond the specific issues there is a need um to to tie these all together to find those linkages and those connections between overall what what is our society how is our society handling the information overload that we have how are people parsing out what is credible and in not so credible information 
and how are people using them that to inform their decisions as well as holding their decision makers as well as holding media and journalists accountable for the kinds of information that people receive and the kinds of decisions that are made on this information so i would say you're not alone in th- in being surprised that there is such a strong connection and it's so the narrative is so powerful because all the way going back to the founding fathers we know that m- most of our founding fathers were actually citizen scientists they were citizens who were very very tuned with scientific findings scientific advances they all dabbled in science in some way or the other in fact a lot of laws that they wrote into um our major documents were derived by um thinking about newtonian laws for instance the really? the system of checks and balances right so so you know if we think back about the founding fathers and how they thought our system of government should be set up they were they were quite informed by science specifically and we felt in launching the center we felt that you know we've uh, we've entered such a such and uh we live in a world where you know people have opinions whether they are informed by credible information or not and we're living in a divisive world we are living in a world with a where we have um really a, a deluge of information so there are a lot of these things that we saw were um which are which lie at the foundation of our society but at the same time you know we when we don't have enough appreciation for them and that's the reason we launched the center for science and democracy so uh, all this to say that you're not alone in not having thought of it that way there are scholars who write these connections but you know it doesn't again get into the public space and that's the critical right that's the critical bridge though in order to have real impact for your work to have real impact you need to cross that bridge into the public space mhm um, that's absolutely right yeah so uh, just fyi we lost you for very brief moments there i think you might have accidentally hit the pause button oh, but actually, you were it was it, it was might so- have been because someone was calling me and i declined Did it happen again? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So friend keeps calling me, and that's why this is happening. Um, so she's in Abu Dhabi, so I can't even send her a message right now. But uh, I'm sorry about that. Should we? No, no. Some- no we're just going to keep going because okay. we're on a roll. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, so now we know what that's about. But it was—I didn't want to interrupt you because everything you were saying was so powerful and so spot on. Um, so, you know, when I, when I listen to you talk, I am completely, I find, I find everything you say very compelling and I'm not even a scientist and I think I want to work, I want to go work with her at the Union of Concerned <laughs> Scientists. And I'm just wondering, uh, you know, I'm also aware that I'm not inside academic culture and I'm, I was just wondering if that moment you mentioned in your week in the life that a you know, it was a, a, a career panel, I think, that you had attended and heard someone speaking about working in science and public policy. And I'm just wondering if in that moment you had a similar feeling, like everything opened up and you're like, that sounds amazing. Or was it a slower process of discovery that you've, you built over time? Mhm. Um, that's a good question. You know, I went to that career day um, 
because I felt like I was missing something. So I think the the thought process of trying to take my scientific and technical background and expertise and connecting it closer to society and uh, for the benefit of society had already started in my mind, um, which is the reason I ended up at that life sciences career day. But uh, at the same time, listening to the speaker who was in this field, who at the at that time worked at the National Academies, you know, listening to her speak about what she does, how she does it, how does it connect to the bigger problem or the bigger society beyond the day-to-day of experiments and research, which is all very important. But at the same time, you know, it just hit a chord with me because um, I already was in this mindset of thinking about how do I take this knowledge that I have and how do I um, how do I use this to help advance society? And this is no, none of this just to say that people who are in the lab or in academia don't do that. You know, they do that in in very powerful terms too. Um, it was just that for me, it was a little more isolating uh, research. You know, the deeper you dive into a question, the fewer people understand what you're doing, why you're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just felt that uh, as good at analyzing things and taking information, complex uh, technical information and breaking it down. And I just, I wanted to know what I could do with that skill. And uh, at the Career Day event, when I heard um, the speaker that I mentioned in my blog talk about her own work in public policy, it really did. It really was that aha moment for me. I felt like the way she described her job was really what the kinds of things I would have loved to do with my life. So um, it, it really did. It really did push me on a slightly different way of thinking about my graduate training and preparing myself for something which which would align more closely with the kinds of things she was talking about so that I could eventually end up in a career like hers. Yeah, that I think is a great segue for a question that we got on the um, on our on our on our voicemail. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, so this question is from Stephanie, and uh, here, I'm just going to play it for you. Hi, this is Stephanie. I wanted to ask the question, as a graduate student, are are there specific things I can be doing while I'm doing my research that will better prepare me for a career outside of academia? Sure. Um, I think this is, uh, it's one of those things which the answer is definitely yes, but the sooner you start, the better prepared you are. So um, I give a lot of career talks all over campuses on thinking about non-academic careers for scientists. And one of the reasons uh, I do this is because I, I, when I was in grad school, talking with my friends in grad school, I realized that a lot of us felt stuck. We felt that we uh, didn't really have very many options. Uh, everybody thought of being a faculty, but uh, I don't know, Michelle, how much you've been following this, and maybe it's it's the same in humanities as well. But faculty positions are few and far between. Yes. Uh, it's not everyone <laughs> very who's going to few school. and far between. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone who will go to grad school will get a faculty position. They're hugely competitive and um, just 
just not available. So, um, you know, one of the things I felt in grad school was that uh, me and my friends were all good at research. You know, we weren't we weren't failures, but at the same time, there was there was almost an attitude to think that if you're not in academia or if you're not a faculty member, then you you can make it, and that's why you're doing something else. I think even in my, um, you know, 10 to 15 years of thinking about this, I've realized that there is a change in attitude of faculty because they also now see that most of their students even though they might be hugely successful, cannot get jobs in academia. It's just not possible. Um, so one of the reasons I go around the country talking about this is because I want graduate students, um, at least in the sciences, which is my background, to know that they have a lot of options. The sooner, going back to Stephanie's question, the sooner you start gearing yourself and preparing yourself for that transition, the better. So some specific things that a graduate student can think about, especially in your early years when you can take classes, not just in your specific field of study, but you can take classes in other uh, departments and schools within a university, you know, to think about what do you want to take some management classes? Do you want to take some public policy, law classes, or even science and society courses, seminar courses? Something that takes you out from your very narrowly defined area of study to something which is broader, you know, something where you can think about uh, the question in a very different way. I remember one of the law classes I took, um, I had to write a paper on... Um, clinical trials. And even though my my background is biomedical research, I never thought about clinical trials in the way I had to think about them in writing this paper for the law class. So uh, I, would, I would encourage students to think about, well, are there some formal courses that they can take that will prepare them more broadly? I also would say that uh, there are lots of volunteer and internship opportunities, both within universities and outside. So for instance, in my own situation, I once I realized that I didn't want to be a faculty, um, I I wanted to broaden my horizon and I started volunteering with a um, health advocacy organization, uh, American Heart Association. I had a fellowship from the American Heart Association and I reached out to them saying, uh, you know, I, I have a fellowship from you for my research work, but I also want to do uh, much more. I want to engage in your public policy, your advocacy efforts, and I want to help you with your fundraising and strategic uh, vision. And they were very open to it because they don't get a whole lot of scientists who are offering their time to advance their mission. So I would say, you know, be creative in thinking about volunteer opportunities, internship opportunities, taking classes outside. And um, and actually, I mean, even think about volunteering time in, um, in the state government, you know, think about Department of uh, Public Health or Department of Environment. Uh, Madison, for instance, where I went to school, was the capital city of Wisconsin. So especially if you are in one of the flagship campuses that are in a capital city, you might have even more options to either work with the governor's office or to volunteer on um, in the state assembly. So think about think about opportunities very broadly, and the sooner you can get started, the better. That, those are great ideas for volunteer opportunities. And the fact that you had a fellowship from AHA and thought to reach out to them and ask how to get more involved. That was a great idea. I don't think that's a fantastic tip. 
Mm-hmm. And I think so much of it is, you know, we think that um, most the science science policy is a career which is not very well defined. So a lot of opportunities that exist out there, you have to seek them out because there's no set way to get there. Everyone who is in science policy has their own paths to how they got where they are. And so I think um, your listeners here or the readers of the blog series, I'd highly encourage them to be creative and think about this in a much more expansive way, to think about what are some local nonprofits, you know, what are what can I do? And once you, so once you reach out to people, you find out about these opportunities, people are usually very open to at least talking to you, doing informational interviews, and even sometimes might offer you a volunteer or intern opening. Yes, definitely. Now, what did it? What was required for you to take a class in the law school? This is, you know, for someone who's um, thinking they might want to do that. Also, sometimes those crossovers into separate schools; those are very different kinds. You know, you've got a graduate school of arts and science, and then you have a professional school that is the law school. Did mm-hmm. you have to do any special negotiations to make that crossover happen, or was that built in because you were already doing biomedical research? Mm, no, it wasn't built in. And it is, it's another example of being creative and being persistent. So I think those are the two traits you kind of have to keep with you. Um, it was, most people never either thought of it or went about doing it. It took a lot of back and forth with the graduate school. Because by design, graduate school um, schools, they don't want you to be taking classes all over campus, right? Because right. you're enrolled in a specific field of study and that's where they want you to uh, focus most of your attention on. So I had numerous phone calls with the graduate school or the administration at the graduate school. I went to their office and, you know, I made the case. I, I told them why I was interested and why they should let me do it. I also spoke to the professors in the law school and I told them why I was interested in taking their particular classes, how it would help me in thinking about my career and what I would bring to their class. So, you know, uh, it's, again, it's, I, I think, more than anything else, it was persistence and um, not being shy about talking to professors, talking to the administration, and making a valid case. Now, all that also means that you have to do your homework. You have to really research what is it you want to do and why, right? Because you can only convince someone else when you can convince yourself that that's a good thing for you. Yeah. So, um, and, so and in, was, a, in a way that's nicely stated and succinct and doesn't... I find that in graduate schools, we all tend to be very verbose. and Right. Yeah. Um, so essentially, you know, doing your homework and then being persistent about it. And uh, you'll see that you have many more, many more doors open when you go in with, you know, a good reasoning of why you want to do something. Um, so I have another question for you. This question is from Susan. And it was submitted via email. So I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. It's a it's it's kind of a next step question. So the first step, you know, that Stephanie's question was about um, what to do in grad school to prepare. And Susan seems to be focused on what happens next when you're looking mm-hmm. for those um, that first non-academic job. Okay, so here's her question. When transitioning to non-academic work, how do you handle the inevitable resume questions about the very different, often wonkier work you did in grad school versus what are you applying to do going forward? 
and the time gap between those types of work that might exist as well? Mm. Um, that's a good question. And I think a question that um, anyone, not only PhDs, but anyone who's making career transitions would have to think about. So anytime you move from one job to the other, you kind of have to explain why you're doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's kind of like that. But I think um, in terms of thinking about the next step of when you're graduating or when you're leaving academia and moving into a, a nonprofit sector or even government, I think what you have to think about is what you bring to the job, not what you don't bring to it. So, of course, you have very detailed, specific knowledge on a narrowly defined field of study, which is what you got your dissertation in. That's a skill. That's a an expertise and a skill that you have, and there's no denying that you have that, right? Mm -hmm. But then while you're in grad school, you also pick up a lot of other skills that you should be playing up. So for instance, you, um, (laughs) almost all graduate students have committees and they have to present their work in front of very difficult committees um, who are oftentimes very critical of their work. So, you know, you, you should talk about how you can take criticism and improve upon that. Um, You should also talk about teamwork. A lot of, uh, especially in the sciences, a lot of research labs are um, anywhere from five to 25 people in the lab. And even though you might have a specific project that you're working on, oftentimes you have to be interacting with a lot of people in the lab. So talk about um, your ability to work in teams. Um, There are also management aspects of your work that should be talk about. Uh, We all know graduate school is not easy to get through and you have to be really (laughs) self-motivated and you have to keep yourself on a timeline, right? Otherwise, you'll never get out of grad school. It's in no one else's interest that you get out of grad school but yours. So That um, is so true. That is so true. (laughs) So you have to think about um, that you're a good uh, time manager both for yourself and for your projects, how you manage projects and people. You should talk about those aspects So essentially what I'm trying to say is talk about your softer skills. You know, as a scientist, uh, you have to be talking about your research both uh, through publications and at conferences. So you you have the ability to communicate your work broadly uh, to large audiences. Now, a lot of times... (laughs) We might agree or disagree whether scientists do it in the best way or not, but at least you have the training to communicate your work um, to external audiences. So I would say, in addition to the very specific knowledge that you bring with with you through your, because of your PhD and your graduate training, also think about broadly, what are the softer skills you picked along the way? You know, I at the top of this call, uh, we were talking about how um, one of the things that I knew I liked about my graduate school school experience was being able to look at very complex and technical information and make sense of it. You know, that's another, it's, it's a technical skill, but it's also a softer skill in the sense that you can derive the best pieces of some complex information and present it in an easier to understand manner. Yes, there's something to be said for the ability to hold complexity in your head. Mm-hmm. Right. And and sort of synthesize all of that information in a dynamic manner. Exactly. Now how that's illustrated on a resume, that's 
that's different, but that's the challenge. And Yeah, and I think it relates actually a little bit to the question that Stephanie asked before, which is how do you prepare yourself to for a career that is not, you know, the, the academic faculty uh, career? And I think the reason I was suggesting that you start as early as you possibly can is because what you also want to cover in your resume is that the evidence for your interest. And I think a lot of times we forget that. So a resume should be a reflection of not only what we say we are interested in, but it should be an evidence to that interest. So if your resume is only the lab work you've done, people are going to question your interest. They will say, well, you're saying you're really interested in public policy, except you've done nothing to demonstrate that interest, right? Mm. So, which is why I was suggesting that as much as you can, even if it's just volunteering somewhere, you have to convey that you're not just saying it because you're out of options, but you're actually interested and you've done other things to to pull into that resume. Um, so it, it's it's an iterative process. It has to be, um, it has to convey what you say you, you are passionate about and you won't convey passion if you've done nothing to support that passion. Very well said. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the science network that you're getting off the ground? It seems like, especially for someone in graduate school, this might be a good avenue to begin to engage with scientists who are interested in these larger issues. Definitely. Um, I should make a small correction that we're not getting it off the ground. We're just expanding it quite a bit. We've had the science network at the Union of Concerned Scientists for, um, you know, over 20 years. And um, it's we've used the science network in a lot of different ways, but we're just spending m many more resources into it now to really help our science network members uh, engage in public policy and advocacy. So just for listeners so that they know what Science Network is about. It's um, roughly eight, more than 18,000 uh, experts, scientists, engineers, public, public health professionals, um, all kinds of uh, technical experts form the membership of the Science Network. And we, the Union of Concerned Scientists, has been running this network, like I said, for more than 20 years. Um, primarily, we use the Science Network members as a one-stop shop for people who are interested in public policy and advocacy, and we engage them on the issues that we are working on. So we sometimes work with them as peer, reviewer, peer reviewers of the research that we are doing. Sometimes we help connect them to journalists so that they can talk about um, their research. We also provide... Um, trainings and webinars on how to communicate to public policy uh, makers or how to communicate your research to broader audiences, how to communicate in the media. So we sort of do this training and deployment function for the Science Network members. So essentially we understand that a lot of people and a lot of our Science Network is constituted by uh, people who are in academia, so people at universities and colleges. We also have members who are in industry and in the federal government or state government, but primarily uh, our membership basis in academia. So we recognize that a lot of scientists, early career especially scientists, uh, don't have a lot of resources that they can use in order to broaden the experiences that they're getting in graduate school. So therefore we do these trainings, communication trainings or advocacy trainings for them. And then um, 
depending on how much time and interest they have, we engage them on the issues that we are working on. So either through joint projects or through reviewers um, or testifying in front of Congress or writing blogs on specific issues that they are experts on. Um, I can give you a couple of examples of how we've engaged uh, some of our Science Network members recently. Yes, please do. If that would be helpful. Yeah. Uh, So a couple of things that... um, and I'm giving you just recent examples here. Uh, there was the chemical spill in West Virginia, if you recall, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of information that wasn't coming out of the federal agencies to the communities that were affected. And we had roughly 300,000 people in West Virginia who were affected by the chemical spill. And, um, you know, for days, citizens didn't know what they should be doing, was if their water was safe or not. And we mobilized uh, scientists in West Virginia to write to the Center for Disease Control and to the Environmental Protection Agency, two federal agencies that were overseeing the, the chemical spill, to, to ask them to provide information real-time, in real-time, to citizens. And because this, uh, we mobilized scientists uh, in you know in West Virginia to do this, um, the federal agencies responded in no time and actually paid attention to their request and started releasing data in a much faster time frame. So that's like some real impact that you can see of your advocacy um, bearing on your local communities. Uh, the other example is um, very recently we um, so the Food and Drug Administration FDA has just come out with a, a proposed new um, nutrition label. So nutrition labels are everything that goes on all the foods that you buy. You remember that barcode, and then on top of the barcode, there's what is in that package, right? Yes, so that, I think of those as so being so controversial. Right. So after over 20 years, the Food and Drug Administration has proposed updating those nutrition labels. And um, what we did is we mobilized our supporter base. And then in addition to that, uh, mobilize our supporter base to say you should write to the FDA to say why we need um, a specific line in the nutrition label saying how much sugar has been added into a product because we know scientifically we know that added sugar is leading to a lot of diet-based chronic disease in the country, Um, primarily obesity, but several other metabolic diseases as well. So we had um, over 21,000 UCS supporters who wrote to the FDA to to say that they support this update of the nutrition label. In addition to that, we had our science network members uh, write a letter to both the FDA as well as to the Surgeon General requesting um, requesting him to commission a report on added sugar so that we know exactly what the scientific evidence is and so that we can develop public policies based on the evidence. And as a result of the work, great work of our science network members, we recently met with the Surgeon General to... Pr- to bring this um, request to him in person, as well as have we have a meeting scheduled to um, meet with the FDA officials who are responsible for the nutrition label update. 
Wow, you are right in the middle of it all, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And but uh, I I can't stress enough that a lot of it um, we benefit from the engagement of our Sans Network members, but we also hope that through activities like this we can provide. Um, scientists and engineers avenues for them to engage in public policy and advocacy things that they would not easily be able to find opportunities that they wouldn't be able to find otherwise how does someone become a member of the science network uh, it's very easy. You go on the UCS website, which is ucsusa.org, and you'll see a link for the Science ne- Network on a homepage. And you just follow the prompts, and it says become a member, fill out a form, and that's all you need. And you also, if you want, you can also indicate the areas that you're interested in. You know, we work on a lot of different issues, so you can say what what specific issues um, are relevant to you and check those boxes. And and then you'll get um, responses from our uh, Science Network coordinator uh, who would follow up on specifics of it. That's great. I'll also include a link to um, UCSUSA.org, the the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, underneath this podcast on our website. So it'll be easy for people to find and join and become a member. Right. And one of the other services that we deliver through the Science Network um, is really, I mentioned webinars. We've been uh, holding webinars very periodically over the past year, um, almost once a month uh, or sometimes even more than that. And really uh, with the idea that, you know, sometimes these kinds of trainings are not available to people on their campuses. So this would be another way for people to benefit from the Science Network. And uh, Michelle, maybe I'll send you a link directly to the network work as well that you can include in the podcast? Yes, please do. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, communications and media training, this is quite expensive and hard to get even, uh, mm-hmm. even um, you know, in, uh, well, even in corporate settings, you really have to advocate to get this kind of training. It's typically reserved for someone who's working in a public relations function. So the opportunity to have free access to this kind of training, it's that's spectacular. I think, I don't think you even, I mean, I don't know what the nature of your webinar is, but I think I'm going to check it out because uh, it's a skill set that is transferable across sectors, I think, and could be valuable to anyone, not just scientists. That's absolutely right. And especially on issues such as how do you uh, communicate your findings in the media or to policymakers? It, it's a little more relevant for people who are working on specific issues or, or scientific issues, but anyone would benefit from those. And the way we run those webinars is also that we, it's not just in-house experts who are talking at the audience in this. We try to make them interactive, take your questions, but then we also invite outside experts to present with us so that, you know, we know we have some expertise, but then there are lots of other people uh, who bring in their own uh, knowledge and skill set. So we invite other speakers from other um, uh, people who've either been in the press or people who've um, uh, testified in front of Congress, people who've actually done some of those things. Uh, We invite them to join us as speakers for these webinars. So uh, I encourage you and everybody else to definitely check them out. That sounds great. We'll definitely include those links. Pallavi, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing about your work with us here at uh, PhDs at Work. And wow, it's just so much good information. Thank you. You know, our, our, our time is up here. Do you have any last words or thoughts that you'd like to share? 
Uh, first of all, just thank you very much, Michelle, for not only this podcast, but also the invitation to write for um, for the website, but in general for all that you're doing to help uh, PhDs think about their career options. Um, the only thing I'd say is it might seem a little intimidating at the beginning that uh, it's a completely new field, but I think there are opportunities, there are many more opportunities in this field than people realize, and it's just a matter of being creative and inquisitive and persistent and I think um, a lot of good things await your audiences and listeners here oh that's amazing creative inquisitive persistent words to live by (laughs) great stuff thank you Pallavi thank Thank you very much much, Michelle I really enjoyed it likewise I don't know about you, but I am completely inspired. Thank you so much, Pallavi, for taking the time to speak with us today on the podcast. And if you're as inspired as I am and you have a scientific background, the Union of Concerned Scientists is hiring. You can take a look at what those roles are on our website, phdsatwork.com forward slash opportunities. Again, that's phdsatwork.com forward slash opportunities. There you'll be able to review openings at the Union of Concerned Scientists, as well as other openings, both within our network and other companies. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you here next time.